0: You are listening to the official podcast of the Mission Redlands. We are a growing community living out God's radical love. Good morning, Mission family. Wow. I had to wear the Christmas sweater this morning. Some of y'all are like, that's a repeat. Yes, it is. I felt so festive last night that I had to get my gas mileage out of this sweater, so I'm wearing it again this morning. But um, I want to start, you know, I want to just say thank you to Ben and Tanya for opening your home to us last night, for being so hospitable and such great host. Uh, I had such a great time with this mission family, and I couldn't help but reflect, you know, last night and this morning, it reminded me of Psalm 133. It talks about, um, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's as pure as the anointing oil that Aaron the priest was anointed with, that ran down his head, through his beard, and onto the collar of his robe. And it's as refreshing as the dew that falls on Mount Hermon, where God gave us eternal life. And so um, thank you for providing a place for us to experience that harmony and unity and um, communion together. So thank you both very much. Okay, um, let me start by praying this morning. I think that's a good place to start. So, if you would bow your heads with me. Lord, we thank you for today, for the opportunity to gather together and study your word. Lord, we ask that you give us the joy of people that live with integrity, who follow your instructions. Lord, help us to obey and learn your laws and to search for you with all our heart. Lord, help us to walk in your paths. Lord, I come before you and your people this morning with fear and trembling. Please guide me and help me to speak clearly of you and truthfully of you. Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Make our hearts receptive to your message and protect it from the worries of this world and the enemy who seeks to come and snatch that message away. In your mighty name we pray, amen. All right, so we're in Advent season and it is a good season. It's festive. We celebrate and we give each other gifts. We have beautiful decorations like these trees and these beautiful ornaments and lights. Um, We have nativity scenes. And as a child, one of my favorite things to do was to set up the nativity scene and to arrange it in just the right way, to put the shepherds and the wise men and the animals all in their place. And last week, we heard about the shepherds we're we're going through, and we're talking about the stories of Christmas, the stories of Christmas. The story is Jesus' birth and his coming to save us from our sins, but there are a lot of other stories that surround that, that sort of reflect to us what this might mean for us. And as a child, I thought, oh, this is Joseph. It's a plastic, small figurine, and this is Mary. She's just a small little doll, right? They're um, They're not real. But as you grow older, if you get stuck in that, you start to get separated from the reality of this story. When this happened, this was not like this. It wasn't a nice Hallmark movie. It wasn't a neatly drawn Christmas card. It wasn't a pretty nativity scene setting on a table somewhere. These were real people with real problems, with real fears, who had experienced real heartbreaks and who would continue to experience real heartbreaks. And Jesus arrives at a time of both spiritual and physical darkness. He arrives in the darkest time of the year. And these spiritual truths, they're always true on so many levels. God's word is true on every level. So Jesus is born at the darkest time of the year, the winter solstice, when the days are the shortest and there's a light that pierces the darkness. And it makes me think of Psalm 19 that says, day after day, The um, heavens proclaim the glory of God. Night after night, they make him known. Without a voice or words or sound, their message goes throughout the entire world. And so God has set up all these different pictures that highlight to us what his word means and how he works through us. And so Jesus shows up. It's the darkest time of the year. It's winter. The days are the shortest that they possibly are. But it's also a time of spiritual and, and political darkness. Israel is conquered by their enemies, the Romans. And they'd been conquered over and over and over again. The Romans are just the most recent, and it appears the most permanent. The Romans had conquered the entire known world, and they set their sights on these smaller regional powers. And in 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey uh, sacks Jerusalem and establishes Roman rule over Jerusalem. And So Israel is conquered. And in those days, um, there's no confusion about what it means to be a conqueror or to be conquered. Right? There are no civil liberties. There are no social justice warriors. It sucks to suck and pays to be a winner. And so the Romans enforced their rule at the edge of a sword, at the point of a spear, and under the crushing oppression of economic sanctions and taxation. And so our story today, as we look, we learned last week, Jesse talked to us about the shepherds and how this was an odd group for this gospel, the good news, the declaration that a new king had come, this was an odd group for that to be announced to. They were sort of marginalized, right? They weren't important or powerful. They lived out in the fields away from others. They probably smelled bad. Um, they knew their sheep by name, but many people probably didn't even know them. And the whole army of heaven announces God's coming to them. And what this highlights to us is that this is a message for all people for all times, no matter what your station in life or what you do for a living. And our story today is about um, another character, kind of one of those side characters, and one that I think misses. Uh, we, we, we overlook him often. And the reason is he doesn't even say a single word in the Bible. His actions speak much louder than his words. So our story today is about Joseph. He doesn't speak a single word in the Bible, but the earthly father of Jesus' actions speak louder than his words. His actions speak louder than his words. Joseph does what fathers are called to do, what our Heavenly Father does. He sets aside his own ego and sacrifices that for the good of his children. Joseph does what his son Jesus does. He sets aside his own plans for the glory of his father and for his family's glory. And I think Joseph reflects God's heart as a father and he reflects his son Jesus' heart as a son. And as I was thinking about this, there's so many things that are very difficult to try to intellectually or logically put together about Joseph's relationship to Jesus, Jesus's relationship to Joseph, and Joseph's relationship to God. And as I was thinking about this, the words of the prophet came to mind that uh, Jesus comes to turn the hearts of the fathers towards their children, and the children towards their fathers. And I was trying to put this together. I couldn't figure it out. Jesus's heart... Is He's the child, the earthly child of Joseph. How does this work? How do these two go together? And I realized just now in the back that we're, I was thinking of this the wrong way. We're not fathers thinking of their children and children thinking of their fathers, but we all are the children of God. And so our children should follow us as fathers to God. They should look and see what we're looking at. We're looking at our father. And so uh, Joseph is, you know, Mary's venerated quite quite well, I would say, by the Catholic Church or by the Orthodox Church, and even the Evangelical Church, we venerate Mary to a degree. Um, Joseph is kind of not as venerated, but he is uh, the saint, uh, at least in some circles, he's the saint of uh, the terror of demons. The terror of demons. I thought, how could Joseph, the carpenter from Nazareth, be the terror of demons? And it could be for a couple reasons, but one reason that came to my mind was that it highlights the fact that as a father, if you are godly, and if you follow the Lord, and you are the the priest of your household, and you help your family to go that way, that you'll build an army that terrifies demons. And so today the message is uh, about Joseph, and it will be mostly to the fathers in this room, um, which is one of the reasons I come with fear and trembling, because I'm relatively inexperienced myself as a father. Um, but here we go. We're going to jump into it. We're going to look at uh, Matthew today. is going to be our source text. There are four gospels or accounts of Jesus' life and his earthly ministry. And each of those is written by a different person with a different perspective to a different audience for a different purpose. They do not conflict. There's unity in the gospels. We serve a God of um, order and not chaos, right? And so uh, Mark and John, they start, boom, action-packed, right in the ministry of Jesus. In those days, John the Baptist came, and the story just takes off from there. But Luke and Matthew, they're very different kind of guys. Luke is a doctor. We have a lot of medical professionals uh, here. In fact, I was talking to some last night about what they like about being a doctor. And so Luke is very detailed, He wants to get the whole story out there. And some people want to hear that whole story. And so we have four different Gospels, and each of them speaks to different people in different ways at different times. We're going to skip most of the first chapter of Matthew because he covers Jesus' genealogy. And while it's very interesting, it's not some dusty old list. It's very interesting, but I felt like this morning, maybe um, y'all wouldn't be as interested as I was, potentially. So here we go. (laughs) We're going to jump right into the story here. Matthew 1 verse 18, and I'm reading from the, uh, the NLT this morning. So here we go. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man, And he did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. And so I want to, we're going to pause here for a little bit and kind of go through this some. Um, They're engaged, right? The culture is very different 2,000 years ago, I'm sure you can all imagine. And there are echoes and reflections of some of these things that we still see today. But um, some of these cultural traditions were much more uh, entrenched and they were viewed with a much more, um, much more reverence, maybe, if you will. And so this engagement, it's a betrothal. There's a two-step process to becoming married. The first is being uh, betrothed, and then the second part is the actual like, marriage ceremony where you celebrate and all that kind of stuff. And the betrothal happens in one of three ways. So the first way is an exchange of money or something very valuable, like a ring. We all know about that, right? The second way is a contract. And so the the man would go to his future father-in-law, and they would negotiate, and they would create a contract that spelled out roles and responsibilities, that spelled out expectations, and they gave each recourse in case the contract was broken. And so at this time, now fathers had a very vested interest in ensuring that their daughters um, were went to homes where they could be um, taken care of and all that kind of stuff, right? And so young men, they don't want to miss out on all this establishing a job and everything and then coming and finding a wife. So they say, hey, I want to make your daughter my wife. Let's make a contract. They work together. They, they hammer out all the details. And then the husband, the future husband, is now legally married to this woman, but he leaves. And he often goes to prepare a place for them. Does this sound familiar? I'm leaving to prepare a place for you. He would often leave and go back to his father's home where he would construct the addition to his family home where he would bring his family to be. And so during this time, the man's gone, and he wants to ensure that his future wife is not, uh, doesn't become the wife of someone else. And so he has recourse in this contract if the contract is broken. But the woman also needs protection and recourse, and God is fair and just, right? And so he says... If the man leaves and just simply never comes back, it's not the woman's fault, right? She's going to be uh, absolved of this contract, and she'll be able to go on and, and continue with her life. And so this is a legal contract. They are legally married, and they're involved in a contract. Oh, I'm sorry. I said there's three ways, right? Uh, the third way the Bible right here said that it had not happened. There you go. Okay. Okay, so anyway. Um, now, I want to point this out also. So Joseph was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. I read this for so many years thinking, oh, Joseph was righteous, so, so he was compassionate. So he did not want to disgrace her. But that's not what it says. Joseph was righteous and did not want to disgrace her. So it, we've all been around pregnant women, and, it, and there's like some mysterious, magical thing going on, right? And at a certain point, it becomes obvious But before that, everyone's kind of like, oh, hey, Mary, how's it going? Is she? Is she? (laughs) But at a certain point, it becomes obvious. And so we can kind of imagine maybe that there's this, uh, hey, Joseph, we have to have a family meeting. Um, It appears that there's been a breach in the contract. Um, And so Mary is very adamant about how this happened. And so here's what she says. And Joseph is a righteous man. The contract's been broken. This is the only time in recorded history that we know of this happening. And so what is Joseph to think? He says, the law of Moses has been broken. That's what makes him righteous. He says, the law of God given through Moses has been broken. And there is a legal requirement for punishment. And at this time, the legal requirement uh, in the law of Moses, the legal requirement is death for adultery. That's how serious God takes the sanctity of our homes and our marriages. So the punishment for this sin is death. The Jewish people at this time are ruled by Rome, and Rome reserves the right to execute people. The Jews cannot do this. And so Joseph's not exactly thinking about Mary dying, but what will happen to her is she will be shunned by her community and most likely by her family. And so This is a a difficult world. And so women without uh, a family uh, are vulnerable. And a young woman like this at this time, her life prospects are very uh, dire, I should say. And so Joseph is righteous. There's been a law that's broken and a sin that's been committed. But I am compassionate and merciful. And I started, I tried to think through this and I'm like, how does this relate to other things that I know about? And I thought about a story that I know that happens 30 years after this where Jesus is in Jerusalem, and a woman who's been caught in adultery is dragged before him. And the Pharisees say, she's been caught in adultery. You know what the law of Moses says. What do you say we should do? And Jesus starts riding in the sand, and he says, those of you who are without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. Go ahead. Whoever hasn't sin, cast the first stone. And all the woman's accusers slowly melt away. And I thought, did Jesus learn this from Joseph? And then again, I realized, no, Jesus didn't learn this from Joseph. Joseph's heart was reflecting his father's heart. And Jesus and God are one. So Joseph's heart is reflecting Jesus's heart here. I desire mercy, not sacrifices. This is the heart of God. This is the story that comes through all the prophets and all the laws. I desire mercy, not sacrifices. And so Joseph is righteous, and he doesn't want to disgrace Mary. So we already kind of start to see what kind of man Joseph is, even though he doesn't say anything. All right, so here we go. i got to pick up speed here. Okay, Uh, we're going to go to verse 20 now. So as Joseph considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Okay, so this is this is really interesting here, but I, you know, for many years I've read this, and it's like maybe this is the first time Joseph is hearing this, but as I read it now and, and think of kind of what must have happened and how these events may have unfolded. This is a confirmation. Hey, what Mary said is true. Don't be afraid. Joseph is thinking, is this true? Can this possibly be true? And the angel says, don't be afraid. It's okay. It is true. She was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus. And so there's so many details here that are important that I want want to unpack, but I'm going to try to limit myself. Son of David. Joseph is called son of David. And we look back at First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, and the kings of Israel are always introduced. They say, uh, you know, so-and-so was king. He reigned for this long. And he either did right like his father David, or he did wrong like so-and-so who led Israel into sin. So already we're introduced, and we say, Joseph is a righteous man. We already know that about him. And he's introduced as the son of David, which means he's going to do something good. He's going to follow the Lord. He's called to name his son Jesus. This is a Greek translation of the Hebrew name Yeshua. The Lord saves. Um, Joshua is the Hebrew name, or is Joshua is what we render uh, in English as the Hebrew name Yeshua. So there's a little language thing going on here. The angel comes and says, Joseph, son of David. Name your son Joshua, which reminds us of the conquering hero, the leader of Israel who established the promised land for his people. He actually led the people into the promised land. This is what your son is going to do. Your son is going to be Yeshua, the Lord saves. And it reminds us instantly of the great hero of Israel who brought them into the promised land. Now, this is so important. You are to name him. You are to name him. What does this mean? So uh, when babies are born, they have a birth certificate. He goes, who's the mom? Well, that's obvious. Who's the dad? We put the dad on the birth certificate. And these days, when you name the child, you're putting your name on the birth certificate. You're taking legal responsibility for that child. So the angel says, you are to take legal responsibility for this child and raise this child as if it is yours. And so we think about what are the responsibilities of a Jewish father in the first century? We have the law of Moses, the Torah, and then we have the Talmud, which is a long series of commentaries on the Torah in which these rabbis spent time expounding upon this and teaching people how to live this law in their everyday life. And so they identified five different um, areas that a Jewish father was supposed to, uh, responsibilities that he had. So first you name them, right? So you claim responsibility, just like Adam named the creatures and he had dominion over them. Okay, so we participate in the naming and the creation of things. And then we have five responsibilities. We're to redeem our children from the Lord. We're to teach them Torah, so we're to teach them about God. We're to give them a trade so they can take care of themselves and provide for their families. We're to provide them, the Jewish fathers are supposed to give their child a wife. You know, it's not good for man to be alone, it really isn't. And so uh, finally, they're supposed to teach him how to swim, <laughs> which I thought was interesting, you know, but of course, um, in the Eastern culture, like everything is symbolic. And so, of course, swimming is an important skill to have. If you fall in water, you don't know how to swim. You're going to drown, right? But water symbolizes chaos. It symbolizes you know, the Spirit of the Lord is hovering over the waters in the beginning. He's hovering over chaos, and he draws forth order out of the chaos. And so we think, oh, we got to teach our children to swim. We have to teach them how to navigate the chaos of life, how to be ready to survive and provide for themselves, And their family. And the only way to do that is by knowing God. So we had to teach our children Torah. And so these are the responsibilities that Joseph would have fulfilled. And we don't hear much more about Joseph doing these things. And I think it might be because he understood the assignment and he just did it. His actions spoke louder than his words. Okay, so we're gonna keep going here. So we're gonna look at uh, starting in verse 22 and continuing. So all of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Verse 24, pay attention, this is important. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife, but he did not have sexual relations with her until her son was born. And Joseph named him Jesus. And Joseph named him Jesus. Joseph was obedient. Obedience means all the way right away. Obedience means all the way right away. So when he woke up, he obeyed God and he did all the things he was supposed to. Not only did he take Mary as his wife, but he named Jesus and took responsibility for him. And so we see here that Joseph is a, uh, obeys God. You can imagine as the baby's being born. So when Arwen was born, I was stand, uh, like sitting there next to Danielle. and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is really happening. And the moment before she was born, I was overcome with terror. I am unqualified for this job. I don't know what I'm doing. I need to get up and run. And then she was there, and it's too late. <laughs> My strength is insufficient for this task. And so I thought, "Well, how in the world is Joseph supposed to teach God about the Torah?" It's like, of course Joseph is unqualified. All of us are unqualified. None of us know what we're doing. It's our first time. Or maybe it's our second time, but we really messed up the first. (laughs) And of course, you know, God doesn't, you know, call the qualified. He qualifies the called, right? He doesn't call us according to who we are because none of us are any good. At least I know I'm not, but he calls us according to who he's going to make us. And that being a father or being a mother, those are processes that God, the chief shepherd, guides us through. And that process is a process of sanctification, not just for our children, but for ourselves. We grow and learn along the way. His grace is sufficient for today, and that's all we need to worry about. Okay, so um, let's go. We're going to skip through this. There's, there's this part, in, um, and Brian's going to talk about Herod in the Romans next week. That's going to be a good one, so make sure you come. But uh, we're going to skip through this part, but the wise men come, they have this thing with Herod, Herod sends them, says, come back and tell me so I can worship, it's a lie, Herod's going to kill this baby if he gets a chance. And so we're going to skip all the way to chapter 2, verse 13, and pick up the story of, of Joseph and his family. So after the wise men were gone, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up. Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return, because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. That night, Joseph left for Egypt with the child and mother, uh, with, and with Mary his mother. And they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken to the prophet, I called my son out of his, uh, Egypt. Okay, and so we see here, the wise men came, they gave gifts of, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Um, this Matthew and Luke, they kind of overlap a little bit, and so that we miss some of these uh, parts. The wise men probably arrived after, like, much after Jesus was born, and we see Herod send soldiers out to kill all the babies that are two years and younger. Right? So there's this period of time where Jesus is a toddler, and so um, when Jesus is eight days old, his parents go to the temple to redeem him from the Lord. Joseph's first responsibility as a Jewish father And they bring the sacrifice commanded by Moses. This is in Luke uh, chapter 3, I believe. They bring two young turtle doves. Now, in the book of Leviticus, where they they give the law, it says that you're to bring a lamb and a turtle dove. Or, if you're poor and can't afford it, two turtle doves or two pigeons. right? And so it says that they go up to the temple and they do not bring a lamb. They bring two turtle doves. So they're not... in the best financial situation, right? They're like a lot of people when they start out with a new kid. They don't have a lot of extra money. Joseph has to get up in the middle of the night and flee with his family to Egypt. He has to travel through Samaria, which is a very dangerous part of the country. And he has to go all the way into a foreign nation in Egypt. How's he gonna do this? How's he gonna afford it? God, our Father, provides for our needs. God says, here you go. Here's some gold, some frankincense, and some myrrh. Now, get up. And take my son to Egypt. Okay, so Joseph does what the Lord says. And this is the second time where we hear not a single question from Joseph. And there have been many righteous men in the Bible that question God's statements. Abraham, really? You're gonna give me a son? Uh, Gideon, the mighty warrior, is hiding in the threshing floor. Um, Zechariah, who's the father of John, who's a Levite, who's serving at the temple in the Holy of Holies, goes, Are you sure you're gonna give me a baby? Joseph, not a single question, second time in a row, gets up immediately and does what he's told. Okay, Um, now let's see. We're going to go to verse 19 here. Finally, when Herod died, so Herod was looking for Jesus, Herod dies. So when Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up, take the child and his mother back to the land of Israel. Because those who are trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up and returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother. But when he learned that the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then, after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. This fulfilled what the prophets had said. He will be called a Nazarene. And this is really, you know, Joseph kind of slowly exits stage left here. There's another story we hear about when Jesus was 12 and it indicates that Joseph was faithful and he takes his family up to the temple every year and he, um, he goes missing. But even then, Joseph doesn't have a speaking part. Mary does all the speaking in that part. So Joseph slowly slips off the scene. And again, I think it's because he understood the assignment. He did the things that God wanted him to do. And so as fathers, you know, we're called to, to love our wives and children as Christ loves the church. That's what the Apostle Paul instructs us to do to make them holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. And so as fathers, we were responsible to name our children, to redeem our children, right? to buy them back from God, and to teach them Torah, and to provide for them a means to provide for themselves and their family, to let them go out on their own. Being a parent is exceedingly difficult. All of you know this, I'm sure, that are parents. And even the parents of Jesus, even the parents of the Son of God, their hearts are pierced with many sorrows. So it's a tough job, but there's only one way that we can do it, and it's relying on our Father and keeping our eyes on Him, right? I usually don't have dreams, and I'm not like a spooky kind of person, but last night, I woke up early this morning, and I had had a particularly unpleasant dream. And my dream was that my family was in danger and that my strength was insufficient to protect them. And so I woke up and I was actually quite troubled by this. And so I get up and I do the only thing that I know to do, right? So I go on a walk and um, I'm meditating on the Psalms and, and thinking and praying to God. And I realized like, of course, my strength is not what matters. It's not my strength. I was like, how can I do? What if this thing happened? Or what if that happened? What would I do? And I realized God's like, it's not about you. I've got this. Just rely on me. So some of you fathers, you might be sitting here going like, man, this is a heavy weight to bear. It is. It's true. And some of you might say, I had a great example. I can't live up to my father. He was a really good example. There's no way I can do that. And some of you say, I have a really bad example. I don't know what I'm doing. Or some of you say, I have no example at all. But I want to tell you the good news. Here's your guidebook. This is the only thing. Every word in this is true. This is what we build our foundation on. And here's the other part of the good news you're not alone. This is your team. These people are your team. And then you have your family as well. And there's one more piece of good news for fathers that I want to give you. We have a duty to do, we have to fulfill our duties. But once we've done what God has asked us to do, the rest is in his hands. Joseph's son didn't belong to him. But I want to tell you something. None of your children belong to you either. Children are a gift from the Lord. They are a reward from him. They are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. Joyful is the man whose quiver is full of them. He will not be put to shame when he confronts his accusers at the city gates. Our children are gifts from the Lord. And so once we do our part, we let those arrows fly and God controls where they go. I want to give an important caveat because I know many godly people who have done their duty and they've let the arrows fly. And it doesn't appear like they're going in the direction that they should. Or maybe we know that they haven't gone in the direction that they should. God is their father. And as much as you love your children, you will never understand the depth of God's love for them. They are not yours. They are his. You never know what you simply doing, your, the impact of you simply doing your duty. And so Joseph here fades from history, and it's at least clear that when Jesus dies, Joseph's no longer alive. Because Jesus, who's Mary's oldest son, is responsible for her care now. And he says, John, this is now your mother. You take care of her. So Joseph's no longer in the picture. But Joseph did his duty. And like many other righteous fathers throughout history and many righteous fathers that have uh, crossed our paths and many righteous fathers into the future, doing that duty is what we're supposed to do. And then God will take care of the rest. And many nations were blessed because of Joseph's willingness to do his duty. So the question for all of us is, we've been given a tremendous gift. What are we going to give Jesus? What are we going to give God this Christmas? How will our actions speak louder than our words? And how can we look at the stories of Christmas and what can we learn from them that will help us as we journey through our lives? Let me uh, pray for us as the the next event takes place. (laughs) Lord, I thank you so much for your word. It stands true and is eternal. Though heaven and earth may pass away, your words will last forever. Lord, we thank you for the examples of the faith, for the heroes of the faith that you give us to follow Lord, I ask that you help us to remember and realize that you are the good shepherd, that you are the good father. And if we fix our eyes on you, you will guide us along the right path. We will be like trees planted along a riverbank. Our leaves will never wither. We will bear fruit in every season, and we will prosper in all that we do. Lord, you are a good father, and you provide for all of our needs. We praise and thank you for this, and we thank you for your son who came to save us from our sins. Us, the people living in a great darkness, have seen a great light. In your beautiful name we pray. Amen. You are listening to the official podcast of The Mission Redlands. For more information, visit us at themissionredlands.com.